Good morning, everybody. Woo! Glad you guys are here this morning. Woohoo! Awesome. Uh, grab your Bibles. You can get them open to Matthew chapter 7. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. But before we uh, get started, I wanted to chat real quick just about recent developments in our world. And I know that uh, this last week it seemed like there were so many people wondering, hey, can you give me, what's, what's your stance on masks? And what's the church going to do? And I, uh, I just wanted to kind of address that. Um, as, as we've been working through the book of Matthew, specifically studying the, the Sermon on the Mount even and the teachings of Jesus, there's a couple things that you constantly see throughout the life of Christ. Jesus is always preaching submission. He's always preaching um, servanthood and selflessness. Like these are always things that Jesus is addressing. And throughout this week, um, one of the things that our, our elders were talking about was just the distraction in this world to get uh, our eyes on masks and cultural things versus keeping to keep them off of Jesus himself. And it's a real distraction, you guys. And, and I just, I, I wanna speak to it for a second, not from a way of like, um, please understand, like this isn't uh, a political matter for me, and um, nor do I feel like, you know, we need to mandate masks and regulate it and yada, yada, yada. I probably hate it as much as the next guy. But um, when you go to the word and you begin to overlay some of what you see in people and then what's, you know, happening culturally, and then you take scripture and you overlay that, uh, and, and you see the thread of uh, humility, of submission, of Jesus constantly in the Sermon on the Mount, getting back to the heart. I think uh, before we even get into talking about the golden rule this morning, I, I sort of want to point the finger at ourselves and just ask this morning, like, where's your heart? Where's your heart? Because at the end of the day, I think that Jesus is less worried about masks than he's more worried about the condition of your heart. Um, I think he's less worried about masks and he's more worried about what the attitude, the, the purpose, why we get so angry and riled up and whatnot about, like what, what is causing that deep down inside of us and could it be that there's just, there's frustration, maybe there's bitterness, maybe there's anger and things that have rised up within us that really become the distractions from the main things. And, and so uh, again, like you're not gonna hear Anthem be like, we're pro-mask, we're, pro we're anti-mask, or anything like that. And just some, you know, I think that could sound like this wishy-washy stance. I, what I want to say this morning, though, is that what we care about is doing anything we can to protect our witness in the city and the county that Jesus has called us to. And we approach everything with a humble heart. I mean, honestly, our elders spent an hour the other day reading through this passage in First uh, Peter chapter 2. I want you guys to listen to this. If you guys... Have anybody ever heard, ever read through the books of First and Second Peter? Anybody know the context of what's taking place, or like who Peter's writing to, um, what's happening culturally when he's writing this text? I mean, you have an emperor in power, Nero, and you have a guy that's wreaking havoc on the culture, that's literally oppressing people and doing some of the most horrendous things. And then Peter writes this letter, and he says this in verse uh, chapter two, verse thirteen. And I just want you guys to to hear this. But he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. And he ends with this, honor the king. And then he goes into the section on servants and servanthood. And when he says honor the king, it's a lowercase k. He's literally talking about the, the emperor at the time. He's not talking about King Jesus. And so there's this interesting thread, and in, in you can find that. Go to Romans chapter 13. You see it here in First uh, Peter 2. You see threads of this in Titus, where there's this encouragement to that um, we are to actually humble ourselves and even submit uh, to a kingdom here on earth because we're actually in submission to a greater kingdom while we're in this little K kingdom. Does that make sense? And, and so we live in submission in the country that we live by the laws that they've given us under the government that's put in place. And in some freaky, weird, unexplainable way, if you go to Romans 13, God has somehow ordained them and put them into place, and he's still in control. And the reminder for us as believers is that Jesus hasn't left his post as king of kings, lord of lords. He, is, he hasn't left his post as being seated on the throne. And if Jesus were here today, he still would approach the culture our day and age with a place, with a heart of servitude, a heart of submission, and a heart that actually encompassed humility. And, and so I, I want to kick off this morning by just posing that question. Not like, what side are you on? But like, where is your heart at? And um, it, it sounds funny to say, but I actually go to like some of those Facebook news sites and all that stuff, and I read the comments, and like, it's, it's a little bit uh, jacked up because I like I read them to see if I see people's names that I know that are commenting on there. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, so like there's part of you that's like I don't want to see a name, but then you're like I'm just gonna read them all. And there's like 900 comments on here. I'm gonna find somebody. Please don't let me see them. You know, and you just keep reading them. And I'm reading them and I'm just going, this is just sickening. It is sickening. Like what's happening in our culture is just gross. And and as followers of Jesus, we have so much more to look forward to than to be consumed by that junk and to play into those games and to, to come alongside with and, and allow the culture to wreak havoc on us. And so while we get into Matthew 7 this morning, I had to preface this this morning by saying Jesus hasn't stopped addressing the heart. He hasn't stopped coming at us and saying, um, is humility present within you, son or daughter? Do you understand the role of servanthood, selflessness, submission and honestly we our staff was talking this week and I was saying like I think one of the greatest errors in our culture today is just submission is frowned upon in every aspect of our culture it's why marriages fall apart like like it's why people can't surrender their lives to Jesus because to give control to something else to submit to something is means me laying down something to actually grant that thing permission. And, um, and that's exactly the message that Jesus preached, was laying down your life to submit it to something greater. That he's king of kings and lord of lords, and somehow in his kingdom, as he rules from that kingdom, he actually is still even in control of what's taking place on this earth. And it's just crazy to me. But I just don't want us as a church to get lost in the confusion and what's actually taking place. Because it's, it, it seems menial to me that some of these cultural debates and political things could actually deter the church from walking in obedience to Jesus himself. That's caveat. And then, so I wanna get into Matthew seven, but I could not do that before we just like 
address our hearts this morning because Jesus is going to continue to go into this. So anyway, would you humble your heart with me this morning and, um, and turn our attention to Jesus and can we pray and ask him to have his way here. Jesus, we thank you uh, for the opp- opportunity this morning to worship you. We thank you for this great opportunity, Lord, to gather with the people in this room, to sing these songs, to study your word, to make much of you. Lord, I pray for us that you guard our hearts and you guard our minds. I pray, Jesus, that you would be our first love, that we would forsake all things in order to give you our lives and our hearts today. uh, Jesus, I pray that you bless this time, that you'd anoint it, God, that your spirit would move powerfully through it, and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, It was kind of cool last week, actually. uh, We had a few families that were here in the gathering with us, and you know, for, for our staff, it's been kind of weird because just people aren't coming back to church yet on Sundays, the gatherings, and uh, that's kind of odd. But on the same token, watching who God is bringing is pretty cool. And uh, there was a few families here last week who were on vacation in Coeur d'Alene from different states. And they got here and they just said, I'm going to find a church that I can attend on a Sunday morning because we haven't gathered with believers in like five months. And Something about that, as dumb as it sounds, like really rocked me because I thought like, gosh, I take this for granted. We live in a place where we're actually able to do this while the majority of the rest of our country doesn't even have the freedom to do what we're doing today. Like, let's not take this time for granted. This is a blessing. Let's be grateful. So Matthew chapter 7, you guys okay? Okay, all right, cool. Thanks, Stephen. (laughs) Matthew chapter 7. Uh, We're going to be specifically in passages 12 through 14 this morning. Um, As I was thinking through this passage this week and and just this thread that we keep seeing where there's like these one-liners that culture knows that we see showing up, uh, actually, that were in Scripture, that culture we see showing up in culture nowadays. Um, I was thinking about the fact that our culture seems to love these sort of one-liner pithy statements, um, these statements that kind of summarize life. Um, things like, uh, uh, what's his name? Forrest Gump. You know, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Um, and, and it's true that I, I think these, these one-liners, like why we like these one-liners is one, because they're simple and they're easy to memor- memorize, but two, because there's some truth to them. And so we, we latch onto these one-liners and we file them away in our head. And every time we get into a season of life or a circumstance where we can pull that thing out, we do what we can to pull that thing out and like share it with somebody else. Another one that we use sometimes is um, life is short, smile while you still have teeth. Have you guys ever heard that one before? Kind of funny. Uh, it's true, uh, simple but true statement. If you go a little bit deeper, maybe one that you've heard before is there's no elevator to success. You have to take the stairs um, one, another one you'll probably recognize is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And poets over centuries have like, ha- have been the masters of these sort of short, pithy statements about life. They're, they're sort of like these modern day proverbs that we just blurp in in certain circumstances of life when we feel like they fit. Um, and I have this kind of theory myself of why we like these one-liners as much as we do, why we use them as much as we do, because there's so much in life that that we don't know about, isn't there? There's so much uncertainty. 
Life is so complicated and there's so much we can't figure out that this life often feels so confusing. It feels so complicated. And so when an aspect of life can, can be simplified into one single sentence to help us make sense of something and we're able to connect something that we're experiencing with some sort of nugget of truth, I think we actually get really excited inside. Like, oh, I can actually make sense of that. And so we pull in this one-liner. But here's a little secret for you guys. If you guys have listened to enough preachers over your life, you know that preachers know this tactic. And so in the end of most sermons, what are they doing? They're sort of summarizing the sermon in this one like, sentence summary so that they can give you something that you're going to take home because they know if you get this one statement, you're going to take it with you and it's going to be something that you continue to like, regurgitate mentally throughout the week and utilize um, in other facets of your life and actually begin to apply it. And in our scripture this morning, as we get into Matthew 7, verse 12, Jesus, the, this master preacher, like the, the, the greatest statement in verse 12, um, one that we will recognize, much like several other statements that we've gotten along the way. Um, judge not, lest you be judged. And then we get into verse 12 here, and he basically says, do to others as you want them to do to you. It's the golden rule. We all know it. Um, but what does Jesus actually mean by these words? When he says, do to others what you want done unto you, what does Jesus mean? Is it meant to be this short little statement about life that's sort of generally true and really simple? Or is there something much deeper to the statement that we need to unpack a little bit and understand? So if you look at uh, Matthew 7, verses uh, 12 through 14, he says this. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, and I know you've all got different translations, but I think we have the ESV version up there. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Um, as we read through these last few passages over the coming weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to consider this. What does Jesus want us to do with this? Like, honestly, what does he want us to do with all that we've studied in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 over the last few months? What does he want us to do? Where the heck do we go from here? How do we take what it is we've read and we've learned and begin to use it? Because we're coming to the end of his sermon uh, in the next couple weeks. And it's been a few months that we've been working through it, but it's been this journey of looking at Jesus as sort of portrait of what kingdom people look like is the picture he's been painting for the last few months. Like this picture of people who take seriously the claim that Jesus actually is the king of the universe. And, and he invites us by his grace to become part of his kingdom. And so we're, we're going to begin to ask, like, what does Jesus want us to do with this? Where does he want us to go from here? And so Jesus is sort of giving us a conclusion He's giving us this contrast that we'll talk about, and he's giving us this clarification. And also that we can answer this one question, like what is Jesus calling us to here in the Sermon on the Mount? What's he calling us to? The, the call of the gospel, the call of the kingdom is really simple, but yet it's really hard. And we see this tension all throughout Jesus' teaching. It's narrow, but it's life-giving. 
And so the whole point of the golden rule, the, the words that we read in verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, is not to give us some sort of standard for moral perfection, this bar that we have to hit. So we need to just make sure that we're always doing right and treating others how we want to be treated. But Jesus is actually wanting to sort of give us a picture of what gospel transformation looks like. Somebody who's surrendered to Jesus, who's walking in this kingdom, who trusts him as king. What does their life begin to look like? And so you see all throughout the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has been giving us this picture of what people look like when they've made their claim that Jesus is king of their lives. And so the whole Sermon on the Mount is not how to become a Christian. And we talked about this from the beginning. We're not trying to lay out the list of things for you to do so that you can become a Christian. But the Sermon on the Mount is what the Christian life looks like once you've made the claim, once you've received Jesus by faith, this is what the world looks like. This is what the life of a believer looks like. And so Jesus wraps up the entire sermon, and it's really important for us to not miss how verse 12 begins when he leads into the section, because if we take away the, 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 the first word in verse 12, it becomes just this another short, pithy statement. But what does Jesus say? It begins with, depending on the translation that you're reading, so or therefore. And so Jesus is actually building on everything else he's talked about in the Sermon on the Mount to make this statement. So, therefore, do to others as you would have them do to you, is what he's saying. And so the, the statement wouldn't have been completely unfamiliar to the people that are listening. His disciples would have kind of understood some of this. In fact, uh, if you have studied any religions, read any other religious documents, um, many religions have similar statements to the golden rule. But it's almost always, as you look at church history and, and other religions, it's almost always painted in a very negative context. It's not positive as Jesus states it. And so it would be stated, uh, what you would hate to be done to you, don't do to others, is how most other religions would phrase this. In fact, uh, uh, Confucius, anybody ever heard of Confucius? Okay. In about 500 BC, he was asked the question, uh, is there one word that would sum up life? And Confucius said this. He said, reciprocity. And then he went on to say, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. But Jesus, in his, in his text here, in his sermon, is, he's concluding, he's wrapping it up, and I think drawing on this kind of pop culture, pithy statement to take us to a deeper reality. He says, do to others that which you would have them do to you. Do for them what you want done yourself. And many people culturally have taken this statement and they've just sort of ran with it. They've said, well, what do I, what do I want others to do to me? And so it becomes like a, a recipient uh, thing. It, comes, it becomes about what we receive. And so we act in order to receive and it becomes the second half of that verse is what we live out. What would you have others do to you? That's like the part we catch on to. And that becomes the reason that we do to others, for others, because we just want it done for us. But Jesus is not giving that as a reason. And so he, he's giving it sort of as a reference point. It's this reference like, what would you want somebody to do to you? Would you want them to respond with graciousness? Would you want them to respond with love? Would you want them to respond with compassion? Would you want them to respond with empathy? Would you want them to be hurtful? Like he's saying, what, what would you want to be done to you and treat others that way? What, what would you want them to do? And so he's using it as this reference point to teach us this truth that he's gonna highlight later in Matthew's gospel. In fact, 
in three years when we finally get to Matthew chapter 22 or something. Um, he comes to this passage of scripture that sort of summarizes what the entire law teaches. And Jesus says this in 22, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. And then he said, this is the first and greatest commandment. And he goes on, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So this is how Jesus is gonna sum it all up in Matthew 22. And this idea that all of scripture is summed up in this love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's part of this relationship with God, and out of that flows a love for one another. We've talked about this uh, in the, over the last few months. In many ways, like in the Sermon on the Mount, we, we have the same teaching because it begins with, therefore, and I think Jesus is not only building on this larger sermon that he's preaching, but he's building uh, on what came right before it. And so there in Matthew 7, like if you remember last week in verse 11, he said this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give, give, give good things to those who ask him? So, or therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And what I want us to, to get at this morning, to get this morning is that Jesus is not giving us in the golden rule, in verse 12, this proverb that if you go live by it, you'll have a good life. Please understand that. He's not pitching this thing as a statement that you need to leave here and go do it because you will have a good life if you go do this. He's actually giving us a picture of what transformation looks like. And if we really let it sink in that God's a good gift giver and that we've received the greatest gift of God's grace, if by faith we've trusted him, we've turned from our sin, and in that, that good gift giving, our response is to be a good gift giver as a result of the good gift he's given us. Like, do to others as we would have them do to us. And so we start uh, to, to become lavish and extravagant givers of God's grace because we've received an extravagant and lavish gift of grace ourselves. That's it. And I've tried to reiterate this over a few months where it's like you, we somehow need to get out of the mindset that we gotta do all these things for God to earn our way with him, uh, and so we're just gonna go love people because you live in a society, folks, where like social justice is very important. And social justice minus Jesus doesn't do much. And so we live in a society where we've replaced God with social justice. And what God has said from day one has been love me first and love others as a result of loving me. What you've received from me, bestow upon others. And Jesus is getting at the same thing here. We have, all, all throughout scripture we have this idea that it's out of a response of what God has done for us, that we are to live the Christian life. And so Jesus says here, for this is the law and the prophets. Like that funny statement at the end of this. For this is the law and the prophets and everything. Therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Meaning, this is what Jesus meant, that, that, that this was summed up by the law and the prophets in the law. That he's summing it all, he's bringing it all together. If you go back to Exodus 23, verse 9, in the law, it says this. Listen, it's really interesting. Do not oppress a sojourner. What he means by that is do not oppress an alien, an immigrant. Do not oppress someone who comes in among you from the outside. Do not oppress an outsider. He says, do not oppress a, so, a sojourner because you know the heart of a sojourner. Um, meaning, you know how it feels to be an outsider. 
Do not oppress an outsider because you know how it feels to be an outsider. And then he says, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So why is God making this statement? Notice that, that you were once that and then he redeemed them in the Exodus. And this becomes this picture all throughout Scripture of redemption. As we talk about reconciliation, it was God redeeming the outsider, bringing the outsider into the fold. Like they become known and become part when they were outside of to begin with. And that's what God's saying there. Don't oppress the people who are the outsiders. You know how that feels. Remember what I did for you is basically what he's saying. For us. We don't oppress people. We treat others how we want to be treated because we know how it feels to be in their shoes. Um, we'll sort of look at these, these contracts over the contrasts in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount over the next couple weeks. But this morning, um, I want to consider this first one in verse 13. This is actually a pretty cool section of Scripture, but it's very, very serious and pointed. Um, this is what he says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, he says. So Jesus gives us this contrast of two gates, is what he's saying. There's two roads, there's two crowds, there's two destinations. There's this first gate, which, tells us, which he tells us to enter, that's a narrow one. Because he says there's a wide gate, there's an easy road, and many go through it, but then he contrasts it with this very narrow gate that few get through. Anybody ever been to Israel before? Seen pictures of Israel? Um, okay, the city of Jerusalem, the ancient city, is surrounded by a massive wall. And so cities back then were, were often protected by these huge, giant walls. And in order to get through the walls, what did they have to put in them in order to make openings into the city? Gates. And so they'd put like a dozen gates around a city through these walls so that people could come in and out of these cities. And so they'd have a wide gate, this massive gate that would open up during the day and chariots could come through it. Like tons of people, crowds could come pouring through these gates. And, and this would be like a really well-traveled route, in and out. People are coming in and out of it because it's this massive gate into Jerusalem. But at nighttime, and this still happens if you go to Jerusalem, Parts of the cities, the, the big gates shut, and this little door next to the big gates opens up. And the only thing you can fit through the little door are people. You can't get the chariot through it. You can't get the massive crowds through it. You can't bring all your extra stuff. It's just, you're going to come into the city, and you're going to come through this small gate. And so Jesus is using this as an illustration for them. Um, so the, the people from the city would come in and out, but again, they couldn't bring anything with them if they came in or out at night. It was a small door. And so if the chariot needed to come in or out, it couldn't. Like it had, they had to wait till the next morning to do that. And so Jesus gives this contrast here in verse 13 to really tell us that there's two ways to live out the Sermon on the Mount. There's two ways to take everything he summed up and begin to put this into practice. One is the path that he's been telling us to avoid all along, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's been really like in an examination of hypocrisy and self-righteousness, uh, of me being on the throne of my life, is what he's been pushing back against, this, this wide gate. And I think that many of us have taken these verses about the wide and the narrow, and we've thought about it in terms of Jesus saying the wide gate, this wide road leads to destruction, and the narrow gate, the narrow road leads to life. And so we hear that and we think, oh, so this wide gate and the wide road must be the pagans. 
That, that's, for the, that's for the real sinners, like the real filthy people, the real simple people. And the narrow gate must be for those who are on the straight and narrow, those who live a good life, do the right thing, those who do things that God likes, those who go to church, those who don't swear, don't chew, or go with girls that do, like people that do all the right, that's what the narrow gate must be for. And we have this idea that the wide way is the way of pagans and the narrow way was the way of the religious. But if you actually take this passage in context of the larger sermon that Jesus is preaching, what you'll understand about the wide road is that it was actually the road of the religious. It was the road of the self-righteous. It was the ones who think that they deserve God's favor. That's the wide road. Overlay that into our society today. Who are the ones going into the wide road? Those that think they've got it figured out. Those that go to church and do all the religious things. Those whose hearts are exempt from God but do all the things that God tells them to do. And the narrow way, this way is the ones who realize we come to the gate with nothing in our hands. Please listen to this. You come to it with nothing You can't bring your good works in. You cannot bring your resume in. You can't bring relationships in. You can't be like, look at all the people I know and uh, you know that should be enough to get me into heaven because I've done all these good things for them. You can't bring your family in. You, you, you look at um, the, the family I came from and like, look how godly they are and the great things they do. It doesn't even matter. You can't bring your church attendance in through the narrow gate. We simply have to come and realize that we need the grace of Jesus in our lives. That's it. And it's important for us to realize this as we look at this golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto, do unto you. Because many of us at the end of our lives want to think that it's people who live that out well who will actually get in through the narrow gate. But notice that Jesus starts with the gate as the entry point. You've got to enter the gate, the narrow gate that you can't bring anything into, and then you walk the hard road through the gate, and that's the Christian life that Jesus is presenting. And it's not about coming to the end of the road and saying, God, look at how I've lived my life. Bro, I did all those great things. Like, give me, give me access to, to eternity in heaven. about entering this gate and literally saying, look at how Jesus lived his life. Look at his death and what he paid for me. And I think that this is important as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that we hear the calling of Jesus, that he's literally saying to us, repent. Because repentance is that, it's the entry through the narrow door, man. It's it. Back before the, the Sermon on the Mount, before we got into this section of Scripture, if you guys remember back when we were in Matthew 3, what's the first thing that we hear Jesus say when he comes onto the scene? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First thing he says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So part of the calling of the gospel is that we repent of our self-righteousness. We realize we can't do it on our own because wide's the way and easy is that road uh, and, and it makes it about me. It makes it what I've done, where I've come from, how often I've attended. And sometimes we hear this saying in the church. Honestly, I hear people say this all the time. <laughs> I've been a Christian my whole life. Go, okay. 
And what we have to get from Jesus' word about entering the gate is that that, that that is like a theological impossibility for, uh, for you to be a Christian all of your life. It's impossible. You can't just be born a Christian, and I've been a Christian my whole life. You can't. There has to be a moment of decision in your life, a moment where you step into the gate and you say, I bring nothing to the table. Jesus, I receive nothing from you, and I turn from my past, I turn from my trying to make myself the king of my life, and I want to make you the king of my life. And then we start to see that the Sermon on the Mount isn't a standard of moral perfection that we have to achieve to eke our way into the gate that he's created, but it's this picture of transformation for those who've received the grace of Jesus in our lives. And you see, the the call of the kingdom is simple. It's really simple. But yet it's really hard. It's narrow. But it's life-giving. And so we come to the kingdom with no righteousness of our own. We, We have none. And we enter the kingdom by claiming his righteousness as our own. He's given us his. And we live out the kingdom by making the grace we've received our own. And then and only then, we actually start to give it to others. Like you can't give anything to anybody that you don't possess yourself. We all know that, right? You just can't do it. So our experience of this gospel simply becomes this reference point for us of how we live out the gospel for our lives. And so Jesus is kind of concluding the sermon. He's really giving us this challenge of what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with it? Because all throughout the sermon, it's not about your actions. It's about your, uh, or it's not about your, your actions. It's, it's not about your performance, but it's about what? All throughout the sermon. What has it been about? Somebody help me out. Starts with an H. E-A-R-T. It's about your heart. It wasn't about anything you did or earned. It was about your heart and your posture before God. And we have to really ask the question, and I ask this in all sincerity this morning, have you entered the narrow gate? Have you? What road are you on this morning? Are you on the the road of self-righteousness, of thinking that just because you came from a Christian family or just because you attend church or just because you've lived a really good life and done a lot of really good things that you're headed to the road of life? And Jesus says that there's two destinations. He says one leads to destruction, and that one's huge. Lots of people will find it. One leads to life, and it's narrow, and few will make it through. And so if I were to ask you this morning, like, name somebody who you think went on the road to destruction, many of you, like, the first people that come to your mind would be these, like, really filthy, immoral people that we can think of, like Hitler and Stalin, right? Uh, Nero, like, these are the worst of the worst. These are the people, the people who could, um, those would be the people that would come to our mind first. But Jesus actually has uh, in mind, as he says these words, he's he's thinking about the self-righteous. He's thinking about the people who knew it all. He's thinking about the people who could quote scripture backwards and forwards. He's thinking about people who went to church gatherings every single week. But it turns out that they were trusting in their righteousness, their own righteousness, and not the righteousness of Christ. And he says that this is the path to destruction. So the religious are on the same path as the pagans. Get that. It's crazy. Because they both have self at the center of their lives. I honestly, like this is totally off my notes here, but... um, I honestly think the season that we're living in, in our world, 
I don't think there's ever been a season that has made people choose more than ever before. Because the road is narrow and it's hard. And we've lived in a country since its beginning that has been so boldly about freedom and letting people do what they want that we have bred Christians who have just felt like they could do all the right things and go all the right places that would create their Christianity for them, but they were never encouraged to go in through the narrow gate. Lay your life down. Get over yourself. Realize that you can't be righteous, that he's the only one that completes us and makes us righteous. So there's these two roads that Jesus pitches. Um, this narrow road and the narrow gate, it's interesting. If you look at the Greek uh, translation of that word narrow, it literally means crushing or suffocating. Isn't that crazy? Crushing or suffocating. So in that decision to follow after Jesus, which sometimes in the church, we actually try to flower it up and make it all really pretty. Like for years when I traveled with the skateboard team as like a full-time evangelist, basically, we'd stand on the stage, we'd be like, Anybody here want hope? And everybody's like, yeah. Anybody here want peace? Yeah. Anybody here want joy? Yeah. Raise your hand if you want to give your life to Jesus because he's going to give you all those things. They're like, yeah, I'm in. And then what happens six months down the road? Life gets hard. The road gets crushing and a little bit suffocating. And you're like, peace. I'm done with this. This is weird. I'm out. And yet that's the path that Jesus has called us to walk. It's hard. It's hard. But it's about making him king and not what the world says to make the king of your life or make prosperity the king of your life or make success the king of your life or make influence the king of your life or make power the king of your life. Jesus is saying, make me the king of your life. And that's actually hard. So I'm here this morning to say, like, if you've never trusted Jesus and said, I will make you king of my life, I'm not going to flower it up this morning and just ask you if you want all the great things. I'm going to ask you this morning, do you want in through the narrow road, on the narrow gate? Do you want to serve Jesus and make him king of kings, lord of lords in your life? And realize that sometimes it's an interesting journey. Sometimes it's hard. But we need to give up trying to find our feel-good religiosity. And we need to have to receive the grace of Jesus that says you're everything. Um, Jesus is everything. Because of his death, because of his resurrection, we inherit the life that he's promised us. And so what we discover as we enter that gate, actually on the other side, is we discover that it's a lot bigger than we thought it was. And it's more life-giving than we could have ever, ever had imagined. Has any of you guys ever walked into a cave before? Anybody? Um, I, I went through uh, Hezekiah's tunnel when I was in uh, Israel last, and we, they literally tell you, like, don't bring your backpack, like, leave all your stuff behind because you won't fit in certain areas of this. And I'm a big dude. I hate claustrophobic places. Like, I hate close quarters. I just do not like it. It makes me feel so odd. And so when you have to leave everything behind and walk into this tunnel where your clothes are literally brushing up against the walls and you're feeling like, man, even what I have on seems like too much because it is so tight in here. And what happens when you work your way through, if you, any of you have ever been through a long cave tunnel before, what happens at some point when you get through it? You die, 
No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) At some point, that thing opens up. And it's so cool, like when, you, when you've weaseled your way through this tight quarters to get to the place where it opens up and you step into that and you're like, ah. Oh. And I just kind of like picture this as like eternity for us is gonna be like the big, ah. Oh. Like Jesus is coming back for his bride. He's taking us to a better place. And this life that we live now sometimes feels like you're like, oh my gosh, this is so hard and this is weird and awkward. And Jesus is like, get rid of your backpack. He's like, get rid of all your stuff. Like leave anything behind that's gonna keep you from falling after me. Just go for it, man. Like get into that tunnel, hit it hard. And you're just like, oh my gosh, but I can't breathe. And it's so suffocating at times. One day you're gonna get through it and we're gonna get to the end of all of this. And we're just gonna be like, like eternity with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Like one day, that cave, that walk that you're on right now will seem so very stinking short, so small. But I know that it's hard. And this is the narrow gate. It's not easy. And you can't take anything with you but yourself. And if you've never received Jesus as King of your life, I want to ask you this morning, like, is it time to lay down your self-righteousness? Is it time to lay down uh, the idea that you can uh, do enough to earn God's favor in your life? Is it time to lay down the idea that you can do enough good to earn God's favor? Because all of us fall short. I mean, Romans 3 said we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that you'll never do enough good to earn God's favor. You wouldn't need Jesus if that was, wasn't the case. And that's why Jesus came for you. He came to give another way, another option. And that way was actually through his righteousness, that he lived a perfect and sinless life, that he died the death that we deserved as a result of our sin, and that through his resurrection, we have life. Like, we actually get to the other side of the tunnel, and we go, ah, oh, we have life. We can experience the life that's found in Jesus. And it's simple, but I'll remind you, it's hard. We come to the kingdom with no righteousness of our own. We enter the kingdom claiming Christ's righteousness as our own, and then we start to live out the kingdom. We, we make the, the grace that we've received our own, and the self-giving, sacrificial love of Christ transforms us into these self-giving, sacrificial lovers of families and communities and neighbors, and even, as Jesus says, our enemies. And what we begin to see is that the Sermon on the Mount, was, again, it wasn't meant to give us some sort of standard of moral perfection, but it was meant to give us a picture of true gospel transformation. So when we receive the grace of Jesus, he starts to do the work. He kicks in. And I start to do to others what I would want them to do to me because I know what it's like to receive the gift that he gave me. We start to love others with the self-giving, sacrificial love that Christ has for us. And it's not easy, but it's life-giving. I promise that. I'm going to ask the the worship team to come up here, but um, I hate to end any sermon without some sort of application, like, Chris, what do I do with this? And there's a couple ways that I've really been prayerfully considering this, like a couple ways that this can go, a couple different people that I hope that this speaks to this morning. Um, there's the simple fact that some of you have never entered in through the gate. And the encouragement this morning is that's where the journey starts. 
You want in? Enter in through the narrow gate, through Christ, laying down yourself and gaining the life, that, the life that he's offered you. So have you believed in Jesus? Maybe you've raised your hand before, but maybe you've never actually walked in it. Um, and the option is always there that you can take the easy way. And the promise is there too that that path leads to destruction. And in all honesty, there's some of you in this room that are living that right now. The easy way that leads to destruction. And it's wreaking havoc on your life. And there's this invitation from Jesus this morning to come in through the narrow gate. But it's the hard way. And it leads to life. And you have to make a choice. It's a smaller group of people that actually chose the hard way that produces life. And so for some of you, you're like, that just sounds too exclusive. And that's actually because it is, which is the offensive part of the gospel. That there's one way to God, and it's through Jesus Christ. There's not a bunch of ways to God. And it is very exclusive. If you want to know God, the Father, you come to know him through Jesus Christ. You lay your life down and you walk through the narrow gate. You surrender your life to him. But I'll remind you this morning that every decision you make today is either leading you towards him or away from him. Every decision you make. So what will you do with Jesus? And here's my real immediate application to those of you that are professed followers of Jesus that have walked through the gate is to actually read the words of Jesus and apply them to your life. To actually do what he says. Your decisions, your attitude, your marriage, the way you treat others. Like, how is Jesus calling you to respond in his heart to other people? in other circumstances and situations because we're living in this time where it's so disheartening to watch people that say they stand for Jesus whose lives emit everything but selflessness, submission, and surrender. Everything but. And yet, these are the things that Jesus brailed on. And I'll say this, that this past week was so interesting to watch the way Christians reacted over decisions made by our local, our local government. Whether you like it or not, to watch reactions. And in the same way that every decision we make is leading us toward or away Christ, you have to understand this, that your reactions and your attitudes are pointing people to or away from Jesus. And Jesus spoke way too much about selflessness, submission, and surrender for us to allow our lives to then begin to propagate and promote selfishness, control, my way, um, I'll do what I want. Like, that's just not the heart of Jesus. It doesn't mean you can't take a countercultural stance. But man, if that's all in anger and it's all in selfishness and it's all of a desire to make much of yourself and to have control of yourself and to have your way and your time, however you want it, then I would question this morning the heart of Jesus in you. Because his heart was humble. And my prayer for all of you this morning was just that like, if one, those of you that don't know Jesus would ask the question like, have I walked through the gate and do I wanna make that way this morning? Like, deal with 
with that in your heart. I'm, I'm not here to like force you and push you through the crack. <laughs> I'm also not here to like paint this rosy picture that sounds so appealing that the minute things get hard, you're like, yeah, that's not what I signed up for. But then for you that are believers, like I just really have a vision, a passion, a desire to see the church shine more brightly in these days than ever before. And, um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of room for the church to get really ugly and um, to actually prohibit people from following Jesus because we push our own way. And in all of this, like, do we trust that he's still king of kings, that he's on the throne? Would you guys stand with me? your heads bowed, um, your eyes shut, if there's anybody in here this morning that's like, uh, I think I want to make the decision to walk through the narrow gate and to follow Jesus with my life. Before I ask that, I'll preface it by this. I was a 17-year-old kid who grew up in the church heard the same gospel presentation over and over and over again. And at 17, when I heard a guy communicate it, it wasn't even like some crazy, amazing, elaborate communication, but he communicated it. And my heart jived with what the Lord was saying through him and what he was doing in me, so much so that even though I'd heard it a thousand times before, I knew at that point, I was ready to walk the narrow path. And if you're here this morning and like the Lord's beating on your heart and he's maybe encouraging to that gate this morning, would you be bold enough to like look up at me and just make eye contact and let me know that God's doing that in your life? that are followers of Jesus as I pray for us this morning would you pray in your hearts along with me that um, Jesus would rid you of anything that is you and fill you with everything that is him this morning let's pray Lord I thank you I thank you Jesus for this challenge that you give us I pray for anybody listening to this message whether in this room or listening online anybody who's never surrendered their life to you, Jesus. I pray for those that feel that they can never do enough good to earn your favor, that at the end of their lives, Lord, that the good they're hoping will outweigh the bad. But Lord, your word tells us that all of our good works are filthy rags because we all fall short. So I pray this morning for anyone who's never received your grace and said, Jesus, I wanna make you the king of my life. I wanna receive your righteousness. And I wanna live that out in my family, in my home, in my workplace, in my community. I pray for anyone, Jesus, that's listening this morning that they would make that decision, that they would enter the gate bringing nothing to the table except receiving your grace through faith. And God, I pray that we who have received your grace by faith 
would start to live that out, that we will be transformed by it, that you would give us eyes to see our neighbors as an opportunity for love, that we would see our workplaces as an opportunity for grace giving, that we would see our families as a place where we can be Christ to those around us. And God, I pray that we would answer that call, that we would pray together, your kingdom come, your will be done, Jesus, on earth as it is in heaven. Have your way in us, Lord, we pray, by your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.